You want to record a coda? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Row, merrily, row, merrily, row merrily, your merrily, boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. I am Glenn Butler, and this episode is our wrap-up and mailbag on the Star Trek franchise. We spent the last six months going through all of the movies, taking a deep dive, and now we want your questions about the movies, about the TV shows, about any of that. We got some of those here. We've got some things that we missed. We missed a couple of things. I am joined in this effort, of course, by my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, we just spent six months talking about Star Trek movies. How'd we do? Fine, 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 fine. Fine. Ugh. You're not good at picking up cues. I'm not good at picking up cues, no. I do enjoy making references that even you don't get, because that, by definition, means that I'm the only person on the planet that gets it. Yeah, basically, even if the two of us having, you know, stewed in the same environment our whole freaking lives are not on the same page, then who else in the world possibly would be? You know, it's it's like sometimes when I think about the prospect of you dying, and, and I think, you know, nobody will ever get any of my jokes ever again. <laughs> well, it's nice to know I have an impact. It's nice <laughs> to know I made a difference. While you're here, you can. So we have a few topics that we jotted down as we went through the movies and as people reacted to some of our shows, and as we realized some things that we just plumb forgot. One of the first ones that I remember was when we put out our Generations show, and Todd Weber, whom we had on for Wrath of Khan, uh, said that he wanted to hear us talk about the horsies that Kirk and Picard are riding in the Nexus, and I realized we completely forgot the horsies. Yeah, we went 0-2 in talking about movies where they put horses in the movie just as an enticement for William Shatner. Yeah, we didn't mention that in The Final Frontier either, which, was it Final Frontier or Generations? I think it was Generations, where William Shatner insisted that they put horses in the movie, and then insisted that they rent the horses from him. Oh, I remember that now. Yeah, I think that was Generations. So the horses that Kirk and Picard are riding in the Nexus both belonged to William Shatner and were rented from him by the production. Because, <laughs> you know, 
Grifter's gonna grift. <laughs> well, if you want him to be in this movie that he's not the star of, you're gonna have to give him something. Sure. And of course, in Final Frontier, he was in charge of uh, the story anyway, so he just went on and put horses in it for fun. Is that all the analysis we have on the horsies? Uh, I'm, I'm not a big equestrian person. Yeah, true. Wait, is, 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 is there a name for that? Equestrianist? We also never talked about the TV edit of Generations, which is one of the most amazing pieces of film I've ever seen. Because I've seen Star Trek Generations literally probably about two to three hundred times. And when I watched the TV edit of the film, I had trouble following the story. Yeah, that's pretty amazing on its own. Because <laughs> they took a two-hour movie and added commercials and ran it in a two-hour time slot. So you know they're cutting quite a bit out of it. I remember distinctly watching it. It was like, you know, about two, three years after the movie came out. So it would have been about 96 or so. 96, 97. It was on the Fox network. I remember that. And literally, I had trouble following the story. Because there were just great chunks gone. And I was just sort of left bewildered. Like, wait, what happened to that part? Maybe because I was so familiar with the movie, it actually made it harder for me to watch the TV edit. Because I knew exactly what was missing every time there was something missing. And it totally bewildered me every time there was something missing. Like, I, I had suddenly lost my footing. It's like when you're going up the stairs and all of a sudden one of the steps isn't there. And you're like, what the fuck? Or it's like when a staircase isn't built correctly and one of the steps is like a quarter inch shorter than the rest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the Uncanny Valley version of Generations. It's close to the thing that you know, but just different enough that it really creeps you out. I thought that was a real accomplishment, though, to take a film that I had seen literally a couple of hundred times and edit it in such a way that I had trouble following it. That's a remarkable piece of film editing. One of the other things that we didn't mention was the red matter. Apparently there was some more to go into that, and our show on the 09 movie was very long, and we spun out the score into its own episode, and we still could have gone on so There's much longer so on that movie. So much to talk about in that movie, yeah. So much to get into in that movie, but you noted down that we didn't talk very much about the red matter at all, which made me think about, you know, MacGuffins in general in Star Trek and in the movies. I mean, I guess the most prominent one is the whales, right? Well, I really appreciated the red matter... Because they just call it red matter, and they say it makes a black hole, and then they, that's it. They don't give it some, like, 15-syllable chemical name, and they don't try to, like, explain how it affects the graviton field and an inverse tachyon pulse and whatever the hell kind of fucking techno-babble nonsense word salad we've gotten used to from the entire 1987 to 2005 era of Star Trek. There was none of that. It's just red matter, and it makes black holes. Period. We don't need to explain it any more than that. And I like that in opposition to the way they sort of almost over-explained things during the Next Generation DS9 Voyager era. Because if you think about the real world, that's how it works. If somebody from somewhere else showed up and said, how do you fuel your car? You wouldn't say, 
well, I use a hydrocarbon compound. No, you would just say, I put gas in it. But what does the gas do? It burns and runs the car. That's how you refer to things once they exist, you know? If you're on the bleeding edge of chemical experimentation, maybe you'll use the 15-syllable chemical descriptor. But once it's actually like a thing that exists and you use it, you just call it a shorter name. So I really liked The Red Matter. It was, like a lot of things in that movie, it was kind of a throwback to the original series, where they didn't over-explain things. So it was just, here's this future milieu, and we're just in it. And this is the way things are in it. As opposed to the tendency in the 87-205 era, where, you know, everything got over-explained, and everything was technobabble word salad, and everything was the engineer pontificating for ten minutes before they could do anything. Which usually was fine. Occasionally it went a little overboard, but I liked the change. It was refreshing. It was definitely part of the throwback, because that's not at all what the original series was about. I mean, all of the things in the original series that got explained to that extent got explained during the next-gen and onward era. Got explained in the technical manual. Got explained by, you know... Michael Kuda and Andre Bormanis and, and Rick Sternback and all and Franz all these Joseph. Franz Joseph even in, in the earlier era. Yeah, even before the next gen era, a little bit by fan writers and fan contributors and, and all of these people who latched onto some of those details. But in the original series, it was just, you know, the warp drive makes the ship go. Exactly. I was, that's exactly one of the examples I was thinking of. If you look at the technologies introduced in the original series, how does the ship go? It has warp drive. What does it do? It warps space. It uses dilithium. That's it. Well, Except have... in that episode where it used lithium. How do you transport your personnel down to the service? With the transporter. Yeah, what, it... what does it do? It transports. It looks like a beam. They call it beaming. Exactly. You don't have to over-explain these things. It's not until the next generation where they start to say, well, there's a matter stream and, and particle emitters and the Heisenberg compensators and, and, and the transporter buffer and the pattern enhancer. And you get all that shit in the next generation. In the original series, it's a transporter. It transports people. And, I mean, that gives you different episodes you can do. Like, you can't do an episode like Realm of Fear with Barkley being terrified of monsters in the transporter beam in the original series because the original series doesn't delve into the details of the technology like that, like we've been saying. So, I mean, that gives you different things you can do. I mean, in the original series, the most you had was Bones being skeptical slash afraid of the transporter sometimes. I don't know, man. The, like... I don't remember what order it was exactly. It was something like the third, fourth, fifth episode was when they started making transporter duplicates. <laughs> and the transporter split people into they, two. They had transporter accidents, yes. But there wasn't, if I recall correctly, a long technological explanation. It was just Scotty has to fix the transporter. Which gets you into the whole spectrum of Treknobabble as time goes on and... The ways that it waxes and wanes. Well, it's sort of... It's always one of the standard criticisms of televised Trek in the 80s and 90s and into 2000s is its over-reliance on technobabble. And I didn't think that was a problem as often as people claimed it was a problem, but it did sort of, as time went on, become more and more prominent and sort of more and more of a crutch that they used at times. And so I found it very refreshing when... In 09, this red matter is presented very matter-of-factly. We don't, we don't need to give you 
you know, its atomic compound name. We, we don't need to describe its effects in detail. It's red matter, and here's what it does, and it just is, and here you go. I think the reason it's so easy to get lost in the technobabble is because you have to be careful using it as a writer. It can't be a crutch, it can't be the crux of a story, because ultimately these are all made-up terms that mean nothing to a viewer. And so they have to be just color that you sprinkle in to flesh out the world, to put in that level of detail, but the story still has to be about the characters and the plot. And it can't turn on just that level of technobabble. Like, I've been watching Voyager recently. I kind of got bogged down because I started season three and I got up to Future's End and I haven't decided to go ahead and watch Future's End yet. <laughs> the episode Jutrell, early on in the show, seems to be like a really good, serious episode about, you know, serious moral issues. It was about, you know, this guy who committed genocide against Talaxians, and there was this war that Neelix was in, and it was all really fascinating. It was a total ripoff of Duet from DS9, but it was good for about the first half. And then in the second half of the episode, number one, they forgot that if you're trying to redeem the war criminal, he kind of can't actually be the war criminal. You know, they kind of went in the opposite direction of Duet in that sense. But also they got bogged down in Technobabble like, for the whole ending of the episode, you know, the climactic scene is in the transporter room as people are furiously typing on consoles trying to save people in the pattern buffer. And it, t and it totally loses, you know, characters making moral decisions. There's a sort of a fine line there. Because when you get down to it, you have an episode like Galaxy's Child, where this climax of the episode is sort of techno-babble-dependent. You know, we're going to tech the tech, and then we'll tech the tech, and that'll solve the problem, and this thing will get off of us. Which, you know, it's a f sort of a fine line between a character story where they figure out how to tech the tech, and a story that's over-reliant on just showcasing the tech, you know? Well, that had all the character stuff going on with Jordy and Leah Brahms as well, and Jordy remaining the biggest creep on the Enterprise. You know, so so it had all of that character stuff going on. The teching of the tech in the plot of the episode was just to drive the nominal jeopardy of the week that the ship was in. But the attraction to the episode is over the character stuff. And what you think of that episode ultimately I think is up to what you think of those character beats. If you think that Leah Brahms really needs to apologize to Jordy for being mad that he's a creep. But that's a whole discussion, I guess. I mean, even even All Good Things, which is one of my favorite episodes of anything ever. Even All Good Things, it's easy to get bogged down in, you know, can you reprogram the main deflector dish to emit an inverse tachyon pulse and then use the pulse to scan the anti-time anomaly? It's kind of easy to sort of fall into the trap of concentrating too much on that rather than building a character and plot-based story about time travel and the history of the series and Q fucking with people and solving a puzzle and realizing a paradox and all of that good stuff. You need some of that teching the tech in order to sort of build the structure of your story, but 
sort of as time went on, as you got later in Next Generation, especially into Voyager and Enterprise, they sort of went too far over into being too dependent on teching the tech. Yeah, I think part of it is that by the time of Voyager and Enterprise, for me at least, the characters are a little more bland. And so the few characters that aren't really stand out. I mean, even in the little bit of Voyager I've been revisiting, I mean, the Doctor's good. He's he's fine. You know, I think there are a couple of characters who are okay, but the Technobabble kind of is able to expand to fill its container. <laughs> That's a good analogy. So if you're not actively pushing in on it to keep it in a certain range of the amount of story it takes up, then it can easily take up the whole story. And All Good Things is a very good example of having dialogue about refining the tachyon beams to emit an inverse pulse or whatever, and, you know, anti-time data! But at its core, it's about the history of the show, and it's about Picard, and it's about the crew, ultimately. It's about contrasting, through time travel, different versions of the crew, and the ways that they relate to each other, and how that changes through time. I mean, if it was more of a technobabble thing, it would have ended with something having to do with the anomaly. It wouldn't have ended with our heroes playing poker because they're a family. You know, so there's that balance to reach, for sure. I've seen people criticize the use of the red matter in that movie, and their criticism basically consists of A, well, they just call it red matter, they don't even tell you what it is, and B, they don't explain how it works, it just does this stuff that's convenient to the story, and they don't explain why it does that, or how it was created, or how it came to do that, and it's like, you're the same people that spent 20 years whining about technobabble. <laughs> you cannot complain about both. I mean, these things have their place. If they wanted to make a Kelvin Timeline tech manual and have detailed, dry explanations for all that stuff in there, that'd be cool. And that would be great for a certain segment of fandom that really attaches to that stuff. Didn't they do a Kelvin Timeline tech manual? Did they? I don't think so. I think so. they did one for the Enterprise, at least, didn't they? Did they do one of those? Because I remember there was a big controversy because they said that the Enterprise was like... Giant. Oh, I remember that one. Like, there was a whole controversy because according to this secondary material, like a tech manual or design specs or something, according to this secondary material, the reboot Enterprise is like the size of the Enterprise D, not the size of the original Enterprise. And so there was all this controversy about it before it was like confirmed by another secondary source and then people started to accept, okay, well, I guess the ship is just giant in this reboot universe or at least some people came to accept that and then other people are like no i refuse to accept this fake track that's not canon but you know fuck those guys jj doesn't care about canon well are there people who looked at the scene at the beginning of darkness where kirk and bones swim over to the enterprise and take the scale of their bodies to the exterior of the ship and find out how big it really is in that movie? I wasn't paying that much attention to that particular area of online fandom when Darkness came out. There were people that took the shot of Kirk being ejected in the shuttle pod when they fire him onto the ice planet Hoth and comparing the size of that single person shuttle pod compared to, you know, use that to figure out the size of a deck and then compare it to the piece of the ship you could see in that scene then extrapolate it to that piece of the ship compared to the entire ship. I did see some really heavy analysis based on that. I love fans. 
<laughs> like, you do you. People do put an impressive amount of effort into these things. Hey, I'm going to stress out about how many times a theme is used in the score. You extrapolate the scale of the ship from a shot of a shuttle pod. There's room for all kinds. <laughs> One character we didn't mention who gets completely shafted in every storyline, like in the canon history of the 24th century, this character gets completely shafted worse than possibly any other character, is the chief security and tactical officer of the Enterprise-E. I don't know exactly who that is. Some people say it's a character called Lieutenant Daniels, but other people say, no, Daniels isn't the security chief, so it might be some unnamed off-screen person. Or it could be this Daniels. Either way, whoever this person is that serves as Captain Picard's chief tactical and security officer on the Enterprise-E gets immediately tossed overboard the second Worf shows up in the sector. Every single time! Yeah, that's some pretty extreme favoritism. <laughs> like, at first contact, they haven't even taken damage yet, and already he's telling Worf, we could use some help at tactical. Like, that ship's a full year out of dock. They, they, they've been flying around for a year. People are pretty much settled into their positions. This person has been serving as Captain Picard's chief security officer and tactical officer for a year, and as soon as the Klingon shows up, they just get... He doesn't even say, you know, Hey, Mr. Daniels, would you mind if Worf served at a station? No, he just says to Worf, we could use some help at tactical. Doesn't even say anything to the guy at tactical he's replacing. And in, in Insurrection, Worf just sort of shows up at random on his way home from a conference or something. He just stops by to say hello, and all of a sudden he's got duty shifts. <laughs> Man, that Starfleet, they'll put you to work. But I mean, that ship has to have a tactical officer. I think people say it's Daniels because... He's the one who's manning tactical during the space battle in Insurrection with the Sona ships. During one of the scenes where Worf blessedly is gone so he can do his job. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing this scene where Picard is talking to him. He says, Mr. Daniels, you're a treasured and valued member of this crew. Until Worf shows up in the sector, at which point you need to get the hell out of the way. Oh, poor, poor man. <laughs> If you're going to write some fanfiction, you need to write some fanfiction about that guy. Yeah, send us your fanfic, folks. Has anyone sent us any fanfiction throughout this entire series? No, nobody has sent us any fanfic. Oh, God, I'm so disappointed. Listeners, listeners, we love you, but come on. I will make podfix of your fanfic. Just give it to me. Oh, I want to see that. Well, I'm going to make you edit it. Fuck. Don't send us anything. <laughs> Oh, they'll listen to one of us. <laughs> one other thing that we didn't get around to talking about, something else from The Final Frontier, which was a great show. It's one of my favorites of all, the, all of these that we've done, frankly. Really? Yeah. We never got around to row, row, row your boat. And the importance of that song to the characters in the film. Okay. What do you feel is the importance of that song to the characters and to the film? Well, life is but a dream. And who is Cybok but the dreamer and the dream? So you're saying that Star Trek V is embracing the universe as simulation within another universe theory? 
I think Star Trek V wants to embrace a more dreamlike quality of storytelling. And I think you can see that in some of the shots after Cybok and Spock and Bones and Kirk land on Shakari. Some of the shots of them walking across this desert, some of the lighting, it gets a little dreamlike. And of course, earlier in the, in the film, Spock references his familiarity with the classics of human literature, and McCoy brings up again, then how come you don't know row, row, row your boat? This is a serious hole in his knowledge. You could say that knowledge is knowing that your life is not a dream, but wisdom is knowing that it is. You could even say that knowledge is knowing that your life is a dream, but wisdom is knowing that it's not. You could. But not if you don't know, row, row, row your boat. Alright, let's get to questions. We asked you to send in your questions, and you sent us several, and we are excited to get to them. Scott, you want to get to them? I'm excited to get to them. Yeah. Our first question comes in from William Rankin of the New Blood Rising podcast, who has been a faithful listener from early in the series, has uh, given a lot of great feedback and a lot of support, so thank you for your patronage. He made one of my favorite comments about Jerry Goldsmith, which I think we'll get to later because we're going to be talking about more about Jerry Goldsmith and the scores, but... He sent in a, a couple of things, but the one that we're going to talk about right now is which Star Trek film do you think needs the most rebooking to improve itself? All the elements are up for grabs. Story, characters, score, fidelity to the core of Star Trek. Which film needs the most improvement to be better as a Star Trek film? Well, I think the obvious answer is Star Trek V. That movie is in large part a complete disaster. It needs the effects to be revamped, it needs the storyline to be revamped, it needs the acting to be revamped, it needs yeah. the direction to be revamped. See, that occurred to me, but I think Star Trek V only needs a few tweaks. I mean, the effects aren't good, I get that, but that's a little superficial. I think at its core, it's a good movie and a good Star Trek movie. Some of the superficial stuff needs to be revamped. The script needed another draft to kind of pull everything together. Um, I don't want to make a big deal about the budget, but maybe they could have sunk a little bigger budget in there so Shatner could do some of the more outlandish stuff that he wanted to do. Because I think, like we mentioned on that show, a lot of the ideas that Shatner had and a lot of the things he wanted to do were fascinating and then they kind of got reduced. So I think that undoing some of those reductions and some of those revisions and kind of, you know, putting another draft on everything, just another gloss on everything to make it a little more consistent and make it a little more theatrical in that Shatnerian way, I think would have been great. So you're saying Nemesis? Nemesis is very, very bad. Yes. Nemesis... Nemesis is another one. It needs a new story and better acting. I don't think the effects are necessarily a problem, though. I'm not sure if the direction is a problem. It might be. I, I think... I don't know. They're both very, very flawed pieces of film. 
See, people bang on Stuart Baird for basically being an action thriller director who they brought in on Star Trek because they wanted Star Trek to be an action thriller. I don't know how much input he had on the story. I know he had input on the design. Like, he had them redesign the phasers to make them look more like guns and that sort of thing. Mm. Which isn't great, but is kind of a small thing, I guess. Nemesis... Again, as I said in that show, the core of the story is trying to examine a Star Trek issue. Or it's trying to examine an issue in a Star Trek way. It just kind of falters at every turn in actually doing that. So that would need a great deal of rebooking as far as basic plot and the mechanics of the plot. And some of the acting, frankly, because, I mean, it feels slow. And part of that is the acting, part of that is the design. Everything is kind of dank and drab and dark. Not as dank and drab and dark as it was in First Contact, and that movie didn't feel slow. Well, First Contact was dark, but not drab. I think there's an important distinction. See, First Contact had very dark design, but the design of the Borg, the redesign of the Borg, was done in a very compelling way. The design of Shinzon and the Remans and all their S&M outfits is what is part of the drabness. I don't know if I'd call that drab. It's just bad. Yeah. Why is everyone in, like, leather cloaks and shit? Also, if you're going to have Nosferatu monsters in your Star Trek movie, then you want to turn that on its head and have them be, like, intellectuals on par with the Vulcans or something. You know, having vampire monsters in your movie and having them act like vampire monsters is just boring. Here's a corollary question that I find interesting. What Star Trek movie do you think needed the least rebooking in order to become a really great Star Trek movie? Well, that question is just, which Star Trek movies are the best Star Trek movies? No. Well, I'll give you my answer. My answer is Insurrection. Really? Because I was going to say that one could use a great deal of rebooking. I think Insurrection has a really good idea at the core of it. It just needs a couple of small tweaks in the story and a better score. And I think that could have been a really good movie with those relatively few changes that could go from a pretty bad movie to a really good movie. See, we're getting back to uh, William's comments about our discussions of Jerry Goldsmith, then, where the second thing you say is wrong with Insurrection is the score. Well, I've said this for years. I've said this since 1998. I remember. And I've been telling it to you since 1998. That score actively makes that movie worse. Particularly the action scenes are made worse by that Goldsmith score. A better... If you just take that exact movie and replace the score you immediately improve it a lot. And if you also make some small tweaks to the storyline, you know, put a little more bite into it, let it address the issue a little more fully, then you improve that movie a lot. That is so close to being a really, really good movie. All it needs is those couple of small changes. I think if we're rebooking Star Trek movies, there's an opportunity to think about just rethinking the next-gen movies entirely. You know, if you can get around market forces that forced Paramount to demand that Star Trek always be an action thriller, then you can think about doing next-gen movies that are more like the next-gen TV show and more like 
the things that made Next Gen really popular in the time that it was genuinely popular in the mainstream. You know, you can think about making Star Trek movies that are... I don't want to say smaller. I don't want to say that a movie is smaller just because it's not a blockbuster action film. But you think about doing next-gen movies that are about investigating issues like they would do on the TV show. And not just, we're going to talk about an issue and then have an action sequence, and then talk about an issue and then have a showdown with the big villain at the end. That's what an insurrection almost is. That's what I'm saying. You don't need to change that much. Make it less about the shoot 'em up scenes with the drones. Make it less about the final showdown of Patrick Stewart versus F. Murray Abraham. Let it address the issue more fully rather than just as a vehicle to get to the shoot 'em up scenes. Just some small changes in that storyline, and it's a much better movie. If you're going to rebook the next generation films, I wouldn't change Generations at all. I, th I love Generations. I wouldn't change First Contact at all. First Contact is fine. It's not particularly to my cup of tea because it sort of is a harbinger of what's to come. But there were action episodes of Next Generation. First Contact could be a fine movie as it is. Insurrection, you just make these couple of small changes. You focus the story more on the moral dilemma rather than just using the moral dilemma as a vehicle to get to the shoot 'em up scenes. You have some lasting consequences. Don't wrap up everything in a bow and have everyone back on the Enterprise ready to zoom off to the next adventure at the end of the movie. End of the movie where they're still on the planet, where Picard has quit Starfleet to like act in opposition to the Council. And now the Council is reinvestigating, but what are they going to find? We don't know. You know, leave, leave that a little more open-ended. Leave some consequences there. Pick it up in Nemesis. Then Nemesis sort of becomes almost like a Star Trek 3 or a Star Trek 4, where you're still dealing with the consequences of Picard's mutiny and insurrection. Where Picard's out of the fleet, and yes, he was acting in the right, but he still went against orders, and he still went against the orders of the Council, and that's not something they let go that easily. And deal with some of the consequences of that. Maybe Riker's in charge of the ship now, because he was still on the ship and still in Starfleet, so they left him in charge of the ship and won't let Picard back in so easily, because now he's got this label as a troublemaker. And... If you have to carry some of the elements of Nemesis, if you're doing that, Picard quits to go lead this anti-colonialist force among the Baku, and suddenly the Romulans are thinking, well, what are we going to do with our Picard clone now? Or, you know, Picard's out of the fleet and they won't let him back in easily because they're annoyed that he went against orders and went against the council instructions, but then the Romulans have this Picard clone, and shit, we need to get Picard! And so, like, Riker shows up to, like, where Picard is hanging out on Baku, and Riker shows up with the Enterprise and says, We need you, because the Romulans have a new Praetor, and it's a clone of you! Picard! And, and Picard, We need you! And, and Picard's like, you know, you know I'd do anything for you, Will, but why should I do anything for the Federation Council or for Starfleet after what they've done to me? And Picard's like, look, the Romulan Praetor is a clone of you! We need to figure out what the hell's going on! I need you! And that convinces Picard to go along with them! You could do a really interesting story there. So if I was going to rebook... I think the movies need more and more rebooking as they go along. I wouldn't change Generations or First Contact at all. Because First Contact on its own is fine. The only reason First Contact starts to look bad is because it's a harbinger of the degeneration of the next generation movies that follow. If you leave Generations as it is, you leave First Contact as it is, you tweak Insurrection a bit to make it a bit more interesting, and then you carry on and just completely rebook Nemesis. It would just be a totally different series of movies. 
And that also carries forward and takes another step with the idea implicit in all of the corrupt admirals episodes in Next Generation that the crew of the Enterprise, fundamentally in a moral way, are better than the Federation. That they keep promoting all of these corrupt malcontents, you know, and all of these people who want to start wars and sacrifice ideals for one day's pragmatism. When our crew, our heroes on the Enterprise, are the ones with the rectitude to deal with these issues. And that kind of takes the next step. Because if Picard is so much better morally than the Federation, then maybe he doesn't fit in it. <laughs> that last sentence is where you took the thing kind of off the rails. Because the Next Generation story is that these admirals realize that the crew of the Enterprise is better than they are... And so they seek to better themselves. Well, that's just... I'm thinking of that as a different take on that issue than they had in DS9. That's what I was about to say. You're writing more of a DS9 story there. Or even a Babylon 5 story. Well, we'll be getting into that. But um, DS9, thinking of the Maquis two-parter in Season 2 was very much about how Commander Sisko realizes that the paradise that Earth has become is an issue, and that it kind of blinds people to moral problems that people face. And these are the things that our crew and our heroes have to face, and they each have their own take on it. And then that gets muddied a lot during the war years of the series, where those issues of, you know, Federation utopian ideals versus things that you believe you have to do to win the war kind of come in conflict, and it's kind of stress-testing that sense of utopia. And, and where the show comes down eventually is that the institutions of the Federation cause issues that have to be confronted, but ultimately you have to defend those institutions. And you have to work within those institutions to root out the corrupt elements within it. Even if you have to kill some Romulans to change the face of intergalactic politics. <laughs> you know, you may have to engage in espionage by killing some Romulans to get them in the war, but Section 31 is a bridge too far. And, and that's kind of a line that the show walks. And I think a next-gen take on those issues would be very, very interesting. Alternatively, in the later next-gen movies, I mean, Insurrection is set in the middle of the Dominion War. I know I was talking about next-gen being too much of an action movie, but you could have a distinctly next-gen take on the DS9 problems that are at the root of the war. I mean, you could even do that without being a, you know, grim and gritty war movie. But yeah, I think generally we agree if we're rebooking Star Trek movies, it basically has to be the next-gen movies. And of course, you're going to rebook the scores right out of there. Well, that's a big part of improving Insurrection and Nemesis. Who would you rather have scored them in, in 98 and 02? I don't know. Composers? Anyone. <laughs> if the history of Star Trek scores has shown us anything, it's that... Everyone that gets dragged into it has an interesting take. I mean, even fucking Leonard Rosenman and Cliff Eidelman, they just show up for one movie and they do really interesting scores. I mean, there are people that don't like the Star Trek IV music, but it fits that movie pretty well. It's pretty good on its own themes. And this, the, the two Chekhov tracks, they're great. 
Like, seriously, I don't think, other than two or three Goldsmith scores, I don't think there's been a Star Trek movie with a bad score. Oh, no, I like I like all the scores to the Star Trek movies to some degree. I mean, there's some I prefer over others, but I like all of them. Here's a question I was thinking of, and nobody sent this in. I could have, I, I should have emailed you. If you were to rank all of the Star Trek scores, I don't know if we can rank beyond yet, because it's pretty new and we've only seen the movie, like, twice... And we don't have the full two-CD version of it to pour over yet. But if you're going to rank all the Star Trek scores, 1 to 12, the bottom how many are all Goldsmith? I say 3, at least. 1 to 2? I mean, we talked about this. We talked about all of these in their respective episodes. But, I mean, there are parts of the Nemesis score that I like. But I would probably put it at number 12 or 13, depending on whether we're counting beyond yet. Yeah, I'd say Nemesis is 12, I'd put Insurrection at 11, and I might put Star Trek V at 10. Oh, man. I'd put Star Trek V, and, and I may or may not put in First Contact at 9. Wow. And that's not even a slight on First Contact. I like the First Contact score, but I'd, I'd have to think hard. Do I put it ahead or behind of Star Trek IV? I, I think I would have Nemesis at the bottom... Reiterating again that I like all of these to some degree, and I think either the next or the next one after that would be Voyage Home, which is charming as hell. Standard disclaimers, I like all of them. But um, Really? You'd put four that low? See, I think that would be my sort of eight or nine. Eight and nine would be Star Trek Four and First Contact, and depending on what order I wound up putting them in, the bottom four might be Goldsmith. At least three. Wow. Wow. See, I would put First Contact High just because I love that theme so much. I love the main theme, but the rest of the score doesn't live up to it. The rest of the score is rather pedestrian compared to that great main theme. And that, may, and that theme doesn't even appear very often within the body of the score. And the body of the score does have a couple of the last really good uses of the motion picture theme in the body of a score. I mean, it's in Nemesis yeah, a couple times. Yeah, it pops up in Nemesis a few times. It's in Nemesis a couple times, maybe, but... It's in Nemesis more times than I thought it was. When when we rewatched that movie, the second time I saw Nemesis, yes, it was, it's in that movie more than I thought it was. But yeah, Jerry Goldsmith he did five out of the first ten Star Trek movies, and four of them, at least three, possibly four of them, would be grouped together at the bottom of my list. You know what though? I'm ready for Jacino to keep doing these. Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm ready for him to get to his fifth and sixth Star Trek movies. I would not be opposed to that at all. Every single score he's done has been awesome. I was thinking about this because of a recent thread on the Film Score Monthly message board, where people were talking about the Goldsmith Star Trek sequel scores, and I was reflecting on the decreasing use of the, that main theme until it came back a, a few more times in Nemesis, and just thinking about that in contrast to Giacchino's continued use of his main theme in his three scores so far, where I believe we said in our episode about Beyond that Giacchino is in his third Star Trek score now, and he is still doing great, fresh variations on his main theme. Like, he is not only not letting go of it, but he is still varying it in different ways. Yeah, Goldsmith's third Star Trek movie was First Contact, where his main theme showed up in the end credits and was played just the same way it had been played in the previous two incarnations. Maybe we shouldn't be tag-teaming Goldsmith now, I mean... Yay, I don't judge. 
That was William's great observation that had me just laughing so, so hard that whenever we talked about Goldsmith, it, it, was, it was like, do you have the actual tweet open? <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith is the Pete Rose to Scott's cane. Which I think is brilliant because you're basically in the JR role going, By God, no! That's a legend! That's Jerry Goldsmith! Ah, no! Yes, as you choke slam. As I choke slam him and pile drive him. Ay, ay, ay. You can't give him a tombstone pile driver? That's Jerry Goldsmith! He won an Academy Award! Oh, God! One, yes, one Academy Award. That's, that's a, uh,. That's the subject of great consternation among his fans. <laughs> but yes, Jerry Goldsmith is the Pete Rose to my cane. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Another question that William sent in before we put out our Into Darkness episode, he asked, Is it possible that J.J. knew what was coming down the pike in terms of interest for him to do Star Wars, and he kind of checked out on Into Darkness, which is getting into the impression that, you know, because he wasn't a real fan, that what he wanted to do was Star Wars, and then he got to do it, which is a reductive view, and that's not necessarily William's view. We did discuss this in more length when he originally sent it in, but that's a common impression. I... I'm not the one to ask about all these various criticisms of J.J. Abrams. Because I love both of the movies he did. Yeah, I I, I love the 2009 movie. J.J. Abrams... This was a, a post, I think you found on Tumblr. Yes. Where somebody was making a point about, you know, you should really get fans to make these movies. Because fans bring a particular sensibility to it that non-fans just don't. And you brought up the point that we made on this podcast, you know, counterexample, Nick Meyer and Harv Bennett, when they resurrected the franchise from the charred ruins of the motion picture, they weren't fans. They didn't had never seen the show before, but they made The Wrath of Khan the movie that every subsequent movie has tried to be. And I made the counterexample. Counterexample, J.J. Abrams, he wasn't a real fan, but his 2009 movie resurrected the franchise from the death and doldrums it was in after the 87-05 period ran dry and the franchise went dark for the first time since 1979. Tangential point, do you want to rebook Star Trek 1? I thought about that because they actually did rebook Star Trek 1. They released in 2001 what they call the Director's Edition, where they actually brought in Robert Wise, and he sort of went back to all the original footage and sort of recut things the way he would have wanted to do it if he'd had the time before the release. And they actually redid some of the effects that they didn't have time to finish because of the badly mismanaged production under the supervision of Gene Roddenberry. So they actually like redid some of the effects with CG, and they brought in Robert Wise to recut the thing, and they put together like a whole new version of the movie that they called the Director's Edition. And many people liked it. I personally thought it was just as boring and pointless as the original Star Trek The Motion Picture. That rebooking was not an improvement, in my view. Well, I think rebooking implies something a little more intense than re-editing. Hmm. You know, we were talking about Next Gen becoming too fast and too much of an action thriller. Would you want to quicken the pace a little? You'd have to. 
And you take that movie and edit it down to about 80 or 90 minutes, maybe it would be better. Well, it was written as a TV movie. Improve the costuming. Yeah. Well... Do fans have vehement objections to the Robert Wise prize the way they do to the J.J. prize? Uh, no, because we don't have message board discussions going back to 1979. Uh. So we only have the future fandom that accepted everything until they were adults slash having children, and then the things the kids like are wrong. But, I mean, they had a perfectly fine starship in the original series. I don't get why they had to redesign the whole thing and foist this Robert Wise prize on us. You know, I saw design sketches recently by Matt Jeffries when he was designing the original Enterprise that had the swept-back nacelles and neck-mounted torpedo launcher of the refit Enterprise. And there were people saying, I think this was some Star Trek Starships Tumblr, was saying that depending on the production budget of the original series, we might have had swept-back nacelles and the neck-mounted torpedo launcher all along. Now, I did not see any sketches with the uh, weirdly bulbous nacelles of the J.J. Prize, so there are things that are without precedent. (laughs) But you know what? I thought it would be important when I first saw the ship, but in retrospect, it's not that important. Although, spoilers for Star Trek Beyond, have you seen the design sketches for the Enterprise A? No. Oh, ugh. Ooh, it's bad. But you know what? I'll see the next movie and I'll get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Thank you very much to the people who send in the questions we've answered so far. We are going to get to more of your questions and more of these discussions after our break. We will see you on the other side. consideration paid for by the following voice of ring of honors kevin kelly here i want to make sure you're subscribed to all of our great feeds here at place to be nation just head to itunes today and search and subscribe to the place to be podcast feed the pwo ptbn feed ptbn pop and of course the kevin kelly show feed which includes the full archives of my podcast some really great stuff subscribe listen And then rate us and leave feedback today. Thanks for being a fan of professional wrestling. More importantly, thanks for being a fan and supporter of the Place to Be Nation. Place to Be Nation is JT Rizzero here. In addition to the archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and placetobenation.com. And we now offer them to you on two great feeds. 
On the Place to Be podcast feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines, main event, Mission Indie Possible, in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. All of this in addition to Scott Keith's Podcast of Doom, which includes discussions on questions from listeners as well as current day and old school wrestling. We also have sports covered too with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoon Show, and NBA Team Podcast. On our brand new PTB Pop podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows are available on PlaySumation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to check out the right hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free place to be vintage vault refresh ebooks we also want to thank our friends at boneheads wing bar in west warwick rhode island and fall river massachusetts and scott keats blog of doom be sure to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and tumblr as well place to be nation.com the only place to be in your pop culture world This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Glenn, that's Scott. We are talking your Star Trek mailbag questions. We have a few questions here from people that we had on the show previously to talk about these Star Trek movies, so that's cool. One question from Alana, whom we had on recently to talk about Into Darkness. She says, What are the top three fanfics for Star Trek? 
And what is the best Star Trek slash fiction? Any pairing. Now, I think we have to apologize here because we might have given the wrong impression that as much as we talk about fan fiction, I, for one, am in the mode of being more encouraging and more of, like, moral support than I am actually <laughs> reading a whole lot of Star Trek fan fiction, which I really don't. Yeah, I've never really read a lot of Star Trek fan fiction. I read a, I used to read a lot of Star Trek published stuff, like the pocketbooks, tie-in contract, but I've never really read a lot of Star Trek fan fiction. So... Very, very sad that we can't offer a comprehensive view on this issue. The, uh, the best slash fic I've ever read is probably the novel Killing Time. <laughs> For anyone not familiar with that story, Killing Time was one of the early pocketbooks novels. It was like 84 or so? Something like that. Early 80s it came out, and the author that wrote it, a lot of the very early tie-in novels were written by prominent fanfiction authors. That's sort of like where they recruited you know, hey, you write fan fiction in these fanzines, would you like to write a professional Star Trek novel? Which does mean that in those early Star Trek novels, a goodly percentage of the authors were women. Yes. And there was a bit of slash that snuck its way in around the edges, even though the official novels were not supposed to include that. But this particular novel, Killing Time, the author wrote the novel with a lot of slash elements. Like, the story revolved around, if I remember correctly, the Romulans going back in time and changing history to try to advance their empire and to try to cripple the Federation so it won't be as staunch an adversary. And it involved Kirk and Spock and this altered timeline where they never met and never served on the Enterprise together. And yet somehow they still knew they were soulmates and they were still drawn to each other. And that's how the story was resolved, that, like, these two... This version of Kirk and Spock that were not crewmates, were not captain and first officer, were still somehow drawn together and still knew they were supposed to be together and somehow managed to resolve the altered timeline through their efforts to like be drawn to their soulmate or whatever. And the editors at Pocket Books read it and went, Whoa, we're not supposed to have these slash elements in the official published books. Can you rewrite this and re-edit it and take out all the Slash stuff? And so the author took the manuscript back and rewrote it to take out a lot of the Slash elements and passed it back in. And the editor said, okay, that's a lot better. And then they accidentally published the one with all the Slash stuff in it. And the editor in charge of the Star Trek line was fired for that. <laughs> to this day, I see among Tumblr fans... And a lot of the people that I follow on Tumblr are Kirk Spock shippers, because that's just how fandom goes. To this day, the first edition of Killing Time is a prized object. I actually have a first edition of Killing Time, which I got when I was collecting books in the 90s and 2000s, which I probably got as like a pack of 10 off eBay for 5 bucks or something. But <laughs> I noticed... It. I'm not the most observant person, but even reading it, I was sort of like, whoa, that's okay, that's sort of intense. You're not the most observant person, especially back in the 90s when you would have been reading this? Yeah, that too. Even me reading it, I was like, okay, that's sort of an intense relationship. I mean, I know they're good friends, but wow. 
And it wasn't until, like, online fandom started to grow in the late 90s and 2000s where I, like, read the whole story of Killing Time and was able to confirm, yep, I've got a first edition with all the slashy stuff. (laughs) But, yeah, among a lot of people, that first edition is a prized object. There are people, like, specifically looking for it on eBay. The fever about it went down a little bit when someone just, you know, posted a PDF. (laughs) But, you know, people would pass around the most slashy excerpts and and just marvel that this got published (laughs) published by accident and the editor was fired for it (laughs) yeah well that's how that goes (laughs) you know you go out in a blaze of glory sometimes (laughs) another question comes from andy halene whom we had on for the voyage home he says if you could be any character from any series, who would it be? Parentheses, please say Grand Nagus. <laughs> Grand Nagus would be a pretty good life if you're, you know, if you have no moral qualms about the way Ferengi society is set up. Yeah, I think if you want to have any sort of self respect, you would probably have to try to do a Grand Nagus Rom move and, you know, reform the whole society. But that would be hard. I, I think if I had to put myself in the Star Trek universe, I would probably be some, you know, layabout who has a replicator and access to the entire internet of the Federation, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to be some random schlub living on Earth in the late 24th century. Yeah. Where there's no poverty and no need. It's a post-scarcity economy. I have a replicator... And I, and I have a tablet that connects to the Federation database, and that's all I need. You know, maybe I'd live in New Orleans and go to the uh, Cisco's restaurant. <laughs> There's no money. I could go there for lunch every day. <laughs> like, I, like, I could not be in Starfleet because, again, that would be a lot of work. <laughs> and there are certain... I don't know if I would do that forever. Maybe I would, actually, but... At least to start off with, I'd want to spend a good couple of years just as a useless schlub with a replicator. People talk in, in the 24th century era Star Trek shows about how because they're a post-scarcity economy, because they don't have any money, yada yada yada, the thing that humans do is try to improve ourselves. And so maybe I would learn to draw? I'd be, maybe I'd be an artist. You could be a writer. I don't know. We could do a podcast. <laughs> We can write some of this fanfic no one will send us. Exactly. You know, so... Yeah, we can do a podcast. Oh, God. What would we talk about, though? I mean, there's got to be media. We could talk about hollow novels. We could do a Marauder Moe podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's another thing. What is collecting like in Star Trek when you can replicate all the things that go into your collection? I mean, Quark... In DS9, kind of fawns over his Marauder Mo action figure collection, but you should just be able to punch up the pattern for one of those, right? Well, I imagine it would be the same thing as now, where they release something and say, you know, these are numbered 1 to 250, and they'll never be made again, you know? Yeah. There's probably some sort of, like, chip in them, or some sort of, like, you know, latinum foil embossing on a serial number or something like that. You know, something to artificially create scarcity. I bet the Ferengi are really, really good at creating scarcity. Yeah. Once they made contact with other species who have different economies. 
I'm getting more questions in as we speak from Tim Capel, whom we had on for Star Trek 3, another great show, another one of my favorites of these things that we did. Was it ever explained how the Klingon Empire survived the destruction of Praxis? They made such a thing of that effectively meaning the extinction of the race within a generation or so, yet they're as prosperous as ever by the time of Next Gen. It seems so odd to throw that out there without elaboration, considering Next Gen was airing concurrently and didn't address the issue to my recollection. Well, I don't know how much of this was addressed on screen. They sort of hinted at, at it on screen with the president's speech at the end, right before he's almost assassinated, where he talks about they have to evacuate the home world and allow the radioactive debris to settle, and then they can do a cleanup and then presumably repopulate the home world. And so that's basically what is suggested in uh, some of the novels that I've read, is that they had to evacuate the home world to let the Praxis debris... You know, the Praxis debris was irradiating the home world, so they had to evacuate people and then do, like, a massive cleanup to try to clean up all this radioactive debris to try to prevent it from impacting the planet and then to counteract the radioactivity on the planet... And then once they had cleaned all of this up, they could go home, go back to Kronos. And presumably all of that would prove somewhat of a distraction from warmongering. And so for a little while, they were actually able to keep the peace with the Federation. There was also something suggested that the, the sort of standard matte painting that they used a lot in Next Generation to signify the Klingon homeworld has a lot of, like, really strong squat buildings. And there's a suggestion that the government center was built like that at the time of shortly after Star Trek VI to help withstand the bombardment of Praxis asteroids. Wow, that's cool. I mean, that matte painting predates Star Trek VI, but I thought that was a, a good, you know, putting the puzzle pieces together theory when I read it. It's interesting to consider how much intertextuality was going on between the Toast movies and Next Gen. Like, there's none in Star Trek V. Star Trek V doesn't touch on anything Next Gen is doing, and Next Gen, sure as hell, does not touch on anything Star Trek V does. As much because nobody liked Star Trek V as because of Gene Roddenberry's disconnect from the movie franchise. Yeah, if other people didn't like Star Trek V, Gene Roddenberry hated Star Trek V. Right. And then you have Star Trek VI, which decides to take an active role in defining the long-running story of the Klingon Empire and Klingon Federation relations, when Next Gen had taken as fait accompli that by the time of the TV show, the Klingons and the Federation had made a treaty, relations might be tense at times, but they're allies, ostensibly kind of moving on from the concerns of the original series in an important way. And when they were putting together Star Trek VI, they, they actively decided to tell that story. They actively decided that the story that the Next Gen era took as done had to be a story that involved Kirk in a central role. That this essential part of the world of the Next Generation was created by the original series crew. Well, the Klingons were sort of the stand-ins for America's Cold War adversaries, and in 1991 it was time to tell the story of the end of the Cold War. Right, that too, and obviously all of the real-world analogs, but 
I just think it's interesting, given that disconnect between the movies and the TV show, that the movie side, in the form of Nick Meyer and whatever influence Leonard Nimoy had and everyone else, decided to tell the story of how that part of the background of Next Gen came to be. Can you compare that to the sort of back and forth between the Next Generation movies and the concurrently running DS9 television show? Where DS9 adopts the uniforms that they designed for First Contact, and Insurrection makes mention of the Dominion War, and the Defiant shows up in First Contact, and Worf has to show up out of the blue with some paper-thin explanation of why he's there. But other than that, they don't really, you know, there's not a lot of sharing back and forth, even though those two were concurrent. There really isn't a lot of intertextuality at, at all. The uniform thing, uh, getting the first contact uniforms on DS9 kind of had to happen. Didn't have to happen. They really weren't going to continue that series without the uniforms that had been adopted for Starfleet in the movies. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. Even though Voyager did. <laughs> Yeah, Voyager didn't get the first contact uniforms because Voyager was out of contact with Starfleet at the time those uniforms came up, although they somehow got the first contact phaser rifles anyway. They got the first contact phaser rifles, and they got new shuttles, and there were all sorts of design things. And then later they came into contact with Starfleet. I mean, Reg Barkley was in like half a dozen Voyager episodes. And yet Voyager still stuck with the DS9 uniforms instead of switching to the first contact uniforms. They did. So clearly they didn't have to switch uniforms on DS9. I think... They went ahead and did that on Voyager because they figured with Voyager being so separate, you know, in text being at the other end of the galaxy, and also as a production being so separate, that they would keep their uniforms going forward. Um, but for DS9, being in ostensibly the same area of space as the ongoing next-gen story we're just checking in on in the movies, I think it would... I don't want to say strain credulity, because we're already in a sci-fi franchise. Well, we already had it previously established that on DS9 they wore the DS9 uniforms, but when they went to Earth, Cisco changed into a Next Generation uniform. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they started DS9 with the DS9 uniforms, and Next Gen ran another two years with their u standard uniforms. Yeah, and, then, and then, also to differentiate the shows. And then in Homefront Paradise Lost, when Cisco is on Earth, he wears the Next Generation uniform... And in Generations, they wore both, seemingly interchangeably. Yeah, well, that was just cocked up from the start. Uh, this is where we got from Tim's question about the Klingons. Okay. Uh, Tim has one more question. Also, is there anything worse than Klingons quoting Shakespeare, and can either of you offer a canonical justification for it? Aside from being preposterous shite, it seems really tough to reconcile with any interpretation of Klingon culture as we know it. Uh, Tim coming in with the hot takes. I read a really great analysis of that once, where just because we view Shakespeare the way we view Shakespeare doesn't mean that other people would view Shakespeare that way. And really, that's not the way Shakespeare viewed Shakespeare. Shakespeare was writing a bunch of dick jokes. Yeah. And, and now we view it as like this highbrow height of English language culture which it was never viewed as at the time. It was low-brow, potty humor. A lot of it, yeah. I mean, It was like the equivalent of a Seth Rogen movie. A lot of it, yeah. I mean, some entire plays, but also in Macbeth even, when you have you know all this heightened drama going on with killing the king and, and the blood on the hands and all of these things, 
if I recall correctly, the scene right after King Duncan is murdered is the scene with the porter who gives a monologue to the audience about going outside of the castle to pee because he's been drinking and he really, really has to pee. We named an entire play Much Ado About Nothing, when at the time nothing was a euphemism for female genitalia. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> so anytime someone said, well, there's nothing to argue about, or, you know, calm down, it's nothing, or why are you getting so worked up about nothing, those are all double entendres. Those are all genitalia jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shakespeare, in his time, was populist entertainment. With all of the, you know, reality show style melodrama and soap opera melodrama, I think would be a better phrasing. Yeah, soap opera and melodrama with dick jokes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the fact that we now view it as like this highbrow English language culture, that in itself is starkly different from the way it was viewed at the time. And so if you look at it from a Klingon perspective, I think the analysis I read was that Hamlet becomes a comedy. About a, somebody who goes abroad for education, is taught these like weird foreign ways, and he comes back and he's all conflicted about things. But then finally he realizes, I need to stand up for what's right, and he kills all his enemies. Yeah, Hamlet of course has to be a Klingon comedy, because Hamlet spends the entire length of the play dithering about not murdering the guy who's wronged him. And then at the end, he murders the guy that's wronged him. Yeah. So that's a comedy. <laughs> They actually published in the 90s a Klingon Hamlet. Like, they published a book that was Hamlet translated into the original Klingon. And it did so well that they published a second book that was the Epic of Gilgamesh translated into Klingon. Yeah, I think on one level, it's, to me, just a bit of, like, camp fun that, oh, hey, the Klingons are, are sprouting Shakespeare. On another level... It's an invitation, like you say, for a lot of recontextualization of our supposed canonical classic literature. Yeah, exactly. That's why I enjoy it. I mean, you know, well, look at Macbeth, the uh, the story of a proud warrior who claims his rightful title by killing his king and taking his place, and then becomes weakened by his traitorous conscience, and so has to be killed by another soldier and have his place taken. Right. It's another way to kind of highlight the Klingon warrior ethos in a way that some DS9 episodes also had Garrick kind of comment on human literature, by which Star Trek means Western English literature, from a Cardassian perspective, and sort of offer that different viewpoint that I think can be done really well in Star Trek sometimes. And really, you know, the Klingon interpretation of Shakespeare isn't any weirder than us taking soap opera melodrama and Seth Rogen movie dick jokes and turning it into the height of English literature. Well, that's that's the nineteenth century for you. <laughs> Basically. I mean, from what I from what I've seen in my, you know, history of literary analysis as an by God English major, that that's basically what happened in the nineteenth century was you know the term boldlerize? I might have some of the letters out of order there, but that comes from an actual person who published versions of Shakespeare's plays that were boldlerized. <laughs> that, that were edited to present them more as upscale, high-class literature. So just the soap opera melodrama? 
Yeah, something like that. None of the dick jokes, except the ones that went over everyone's head because they forgot that nothing was a euphemism for female genitalia. Right. So there were these editions of the plays in the, in the 19th century that were, were accepted as canonical great literature of the history of England. Forgetting a lot of the context, forgetting a lot of the references and jokes, like you say, but also forgetting a lot of the social context. You know, a lot, all of Shakespeare's histories were written about kings and people who were very important to the current rulers of England at the time that Shakespeare was living. And so all of these were written with perspectives that would be allowed by the people ruling England at the time that Shakespeare was living. And with explicit morals in many cases. Um, and all of these different sort of contextual elements that get sapped out of something when you just take it as great literature, capital G, capital L, you know, these contexts that have a way of getting leached out of many things over time. I mean, any work of art and work of literature has a social context as well as an artistic one that can be relevant when discussing it, but also putting that in the social context of Klingon society again puts that different spin on it, which I think is pretty fun and valuable in some ways. So, uh, Tim, you, you may think of it as pretentious shite, but, you know, there's our take. We have always been fans of radical recontextualization. Yes. One more from one of our guests, from Scott Criscola, who was with us for Insurrection. He asks... Who do you think, outside of Bones, is the most popular Doctor of the franchise? Which I think is pretty hard to get into popularity, because the later shows really did not penetrate the popular consciousness the way that Tos and Next Gen did. Well, okay, that's one perspective. I was thinking more of popular within the fandom. Okay. In which case, it's really either Crusher or Bashir. I mean, people enjoyed the Doctor and Voyager... And I can't really think of anyone that has a particular love for flocks, the emergency medical Neelix. I mean, I'm sure these folks are out there, and I I love and bless you. But, um, you know, the Voyager Doctor is pretty beloved, though, among people who are fans enough to have watched Voyager. They just... I don't... Okay, I don't mean to say fans enough, because we're all fans and we're all equal. But among people who are fans of Voyager, the Doctor is pretty beloved. They just dropped so many balls with that character. But then again, they dropped so many balls with that entire show, not just that character. But I mean, there were so many episodes about like, you know, oh, the Doctor's program is deteriorating. We need to fix his program. It's like, it's a program. Control C. But you have a backup? Well, they had a backup, but there was an episode where the Doctor's program was growing too large, and so they had to give it the computer space that was being taken up by the backup, and so now there is no backup. That is so startlingly stupid. Well, <laughs> replicate an extra isolinear chip, plug that motherfucker in. Well, on Voyager, it would have to be bioneural elements, right? Plus, the Doctor's base programming is different from his active memory. You can port that active memory onto another copy of the program. Well, you're getting into a lot of the teching the tech episodes with the Doctor again, right? As teching to... the tech is one thing, but when you tech the tech so badly... I mean, okay, make up whatever the hell you want to make up about inverse tachyon pulses scanning anti-time anomalies, but this is simple data! When Word crashes and you have to reinstall it, that doesn't mean you lose all your documents! 
regardless of data security issues. I anyway, think, well, yeah, we were talking about the popularity of doctors, not how badly Voyager's writers fucked up their jobs for seven years. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep an open mind about Voyager because there are people that watched it. And I, you know, I watched it as a 17 to 23-year-old dude in the 90s. So I'm so, not sure, quite sure I entirely trust my opinion of the series without having rewatched it. But I don't like it enough to sit through it to rewatch it. So I'm kind of stuck in a quandary there. That is exactly why I decided to go back and watch it. Because I was watching it as a tween and teen before tweens had been invented um, in the 90s as a, you know, dude. Uh, which, you know... Tween, yeah. tween and teen dudes have very bad perspectives on a lot of things. Yeah, but based on your rewatching it, it's just as bad as I remember. I wouldn't say just as bad, but it's kind of bland, except for or, the Doctor often enough. Remember at one point, when you were at the end of the second season, I asked you, what is the best episode so far? And what DS9 episode is it analogous to? And it was analogous to like a fairly middling to not quite as good as middling DS9 episode, and that was the best Voyager episode of the first two seasons. I will say that in its first two seasons, unlike Next Gen and DS9, Voyager hadn't really produced like a bona fide classic of the show, depending on how you feel about Tuvix, and that is still a very... Uh, uh, um, that episode gives me a lot of consternation. I still don't know what to make of it. Well, let's look at it this way. In the first two seasons, Next Gen produced Where No One Has Gone Before, The Measure of a Man. In the first two seasons, DS9 produced... God, just so many first season DS9 episodes I love. But above all, everything else, DS9 did the Circle Trilogy at the beginning of season two. Yes. Season two was Paradise. Season two was the Gem Hadar. Well, I mean, you'd point to Duet more as the bona fide classic from the early era That's of the show. another but yeah. one, yes. What Voyager episode is there in the first two seasons of Voyager that's as good as Duet, that's as good as the Circle Trilogy, that's as good as Measure of a Man? Yeah, I don't really have an answer for that one. So, you know. I mean, again, depending on what you think about Tuvix, that's probably the best candidate, but I still don't know what to make of that one. I don't want to judge Voyager too harshly based on what I thought of it when I was a 17 to 23 year old dude watching it in the 90s. On the other hand, I don't like it enough to actually go back and sit through the whole thing to form a more complete opinion of it. So, um, But yes, Doctors, I think... Well, if nothing else, there was a... When they took Dr. Crusher off the show, there was a fan campaign to get Dr. Crusher back on the show, and they eventually got Dr. Crusher back on the show, so... If you want to use that as a measure of popularity. Yeah, but her character so often was not treated well. Her character wasn't featured much at all. It was no. very much a background character. I mean, I love Next Gen as much as anyone, but the women on that show were not treated well. Well, was Crusher any more or less sidelined on Next Gen than Sulu and Chekhov were on the original series? Oh, of course not. The original series wasn't an ensemble show. That's what I'm saying. Crusher was decidedly a secondary character. That's that's true enough. But still, I mean, in terms of general popularity, I think it would have to be Crusher because of just how many more people watched and loved Next Gen. If you're going to take Among Star Trek fans, I think it, you'd have a solid case for the Voyager Doctor. Hmm. 
Um, Bashir's primary popularity with fandom is when people ship him with Garrick. Yes. Yes, totally. Otherwise, Bashir also has probably the most character development of any of the Doctors within the show, but then they just kind of jettison all of it at the end of Season 6, and it's just bad. <laughs> like, in the early years, and I've been watching Season 1 a couple of times in recent years, like I did the blog series about it for Place to Be, I got most of the way through Season 1, and now my boyfriend is watching DS9, and just seeing Season 1 again so soon... They just hit you over the head with how obnoxious and how much of a, a creep Bashir is. And he grows out of that. You know, he doesn't do that as much in the second season. In the third or fourth season, they actually comment on it a little more. And he, he does develop. And his relationship with O'Brien is a beautiful thing that develops over the course of the series. And his stuff with Garrick is beautiful over the course of the whole series. Except in the later seasons, when they sidelined it because they didn't want it to seem gay. Yeah, they sort of took a couple of rather extreme steps to try to avoid Garrick Bashir shipping. And and then, of course, at the end of Season 6, or or even earlier in Season 6, really, with, with Dax and Worf and all that, Bashir just starts mooning over her, over Dax, all over again. And, it, and it's just obnoxious all over again with the added element that it's repeating. And that they throw out some of that character development for an episode's melodrama, and that part of it is just bad. So I think among Star Trek fans, you'd have a solid case for the Voyager Doctor. I know he is well-liked, even among people who don't particularly like Voyager. Let's move on to some questions that we got from Steve Rogers, a uh, listener and reader of The Place to Be, and we always appreciate that. <clears throat> the first time I encountered... A Star Trek, the original series rewatch podcast, the podcast decided to do it in random order, since for several decades that was the way many experienced the original series in its syndicated package run. Later on, several I've listened to, including one I'd like to plug called The Edge of Forever on Earth2.net, decided to take on the series season by season, either production order or air date order. Edge of Forever, as well as Roddenberry.com's Mission Log, which I do listen to the Mission Log show. It's a pretty interesting show. Um, they do it by air date, but I can assume some podcasts do production order. Fifty years later, what would you say would be the best format to sit and enjoy a binge session of the classic Trek? So, production order versus air date order. Uh, Toast is the only series where it really matters. There, there are some variances in Next Gen or DS9, but I don't think anybody goes with production order in those cases. No. It depends on what you're going to be doing. If you've decided that you want to sit down and watch all of Star Trek and you're committed to watching 80 hours of Star Trek and you want to go in order, then that's fine, you know. Actually, production area doesn't make a huge difference. I guess if I had to pick one, I might lean toward production, at least in the early first season. But really, I don't think you have to go in order. I think the random is fine. Yeah, Steve does mention, uh, his question does go on a little longer, I'm abridging it a little bit for the podcast, but he does mention the anthology nature of the series uh, continuing to a large extent through Next Gen, and the sort of development of continuity in Star Trek, impacting how you would want to watch it. Even with continuity, though, I was thinking about this recently because you were introducing your boyfriend to Star Trek, and then even before that, people put too much emphasis on watching stuff in order. 
I mentioned this in an earlier episode where I talked about how people put too much emphasis on spoilers. And that's one of the motivations for watching stuff in order, that you don't want to watch episode 10 and be spoiled on a shocking revelation from episode 3. Well, why not? It's not going to really ruin it. I mean, if you're watching it just to be surprised, okay, fine, watch it in order. But if you're watching it because you think the writing's good and the acting's good and it's entertaining and it's interesting, well, it's still going to be interesting, even if you're spoiled. If it's interesting enough for you to watch a second time, well, you're not going to avoid spoilers the second time. So is it that astonishingly vital to avoid spoilers the first time? I think I've mentioned this before. One of the first episodes of Babylon 5 I ever saw was Severed Dreams. Hmm. Talk, you talk about jumping in in the middle, talking about talking about spoilers. It, it didn't ruin my enjoyment of the series. It changed the way that I saw other episodes for the first time, where I picked up on foreshadowing that I wouldn't have picked up on if I watched it in order. Otherwise, I wouldn't have picked up on the foreshadowing until the second time I saw it. This time, I picked up on the foreshadowing the first time I saw it, because I had already seen later episodes. Yeah. But, but other than that, it, it's not like it's going to ruin your enjoyment of the show. I think people get too hung up on viewing order. Watch whatever fucking episode you're going to enjoy. There's an issue of intent, too. I mean, in a series like Babylon 5, Babylon 5 is an extreme example, but in a series that has continuity and is going to do foreshadowing like that, there's an issue of intention as far as what the writers, producers, whatever, want you to pick up on as time goes on versus what you would pick up on rewatching it after the whole story has been shown. And so there are kind of two different viewing experiences, and going in order, in the order that it's been presented to you, unless it's been mucked around with, like, you know, Firefly was put out, broadcast out of order, whatever. There are those two distinct experiences that the show is being made for, that the show is being made to convey in different contexts. This is not the case with Star Trek. <laughs> This is not the case with the original series. DS9 gets into more continuity and more serialization and was really ahead of its time as far as that because that's, you know, basically the model for television now. Unless you're watching CSI. <laughs> but for the original series and pretty much all of Next Gen, I mean, the closest thing Next Gen had to a long-running plot thread was um, everything with the Klingons and whether Worf is liked by the Klingons or disliked by the Klingons this season. But even then, um, a lot of mixing up and syndication wouldn't really impact much, aside from something else that Steve mentions later in his question is uh, sort of tracking changes in production, you know, different writing staffs and different ideas of what the show is supposed to be that impact how it's made and those shifts that you can see when watching something in production order, I suppose. Well, that's something you can see if you watch it in order, but that's also something you're probably not going to notice on first watch anyway. Probably not, no. I mean, I don't think there was anyone watching the original series as it aired saying, you know, it really wasn't as good since Gene Kuhn left. There are people who watch it now who say it wasn't as good after Gene Kuhn left, and I would probably agree. I don't remember the exact point where he left, but, you know... Season 3, aside from a couple episodes, is not good. You know, the Fred Freiberger era oh, and all that. Yeah, Season 3 is famously... Yeah, Season 3, the infamous era when Fred Freiberger was running the show and Gene Roddenberry was trying to get police dramas commissioned because Star Trek was a goner anyway. <laughs> you know, the man could hustle. I, I think the show really suffered when Gene C. Fontana left the production. <laughs> yes. 
But yeah, I just think people get so hung up on viewing order, and I think it's not worth the extreme amount of consideration and consternation people devote to it. I think that's dying down a little bit now, when so many people who come to Star Trek now are coming to it on Netflix or a similar streaming service, and so the order that they view it is the order that it's on Netflix. <laughs> well, I guess that's true. I was thinking of it more in the context of if you're introducing someone to the series, you know, don't make them sit through the entire first season of The Next Generation if you're not sure if they're going to like it. Start them off with Best of Both Worlds. Start them off with Measure of a Man. Start them off with all good things. Who gives a fuck? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was trying to start my boyfriend on it this last spring, when I discovered that there's only so much time you can spend dating me and not watching Star Trek, um, he, he started asking about it. And so I asked, you know, what sort of, you know, show do you want? And I determined that the original series was probably not for him at this point, at least. If he becomes a mega fan, that's a lot more for him to get into. But um, I decided to start on Next Gen, and I decided, you know, I think I started him on Q-Who, intending to go to Best of Both Worlds next, and kind of hook him on that, because I thought that would be more his style. And then I gave him a list of, like, six episodes or something from the first two seasons. And I said, you know, go on Hulu or Netflix or whatever, watch these episodes, and then when you get into season three, you can watch every episode. And he watched Where No One Has Gone Before, he watched Hide and Q, maybe another episode or two, and decided that he didn't really like it because, like, the shows that he's really into watching are, like, Bates Motel, X-Files... He wants something a little a little darker, a little more invested in serialized stories. So, I'm, so I was like, okay, let's start DS9. <laughs> and, and we watched Emissary, and he loved it. So we're on that now. So everyone has all of their different ways into it. And maybe if we watch DS9 over the course of the next however long that's going to take and he really gets into it, you know, maybe he'll try Next Gen again, or maybe the older movies, or something like that. Everyone has a different way into it, and there isn't anything that can work for everyone. So, I mean, whatever order you want to take it, you're going to be fine. <laughs> Next question from Steve. Where do you see the franchise going now? It's picked up for a fourth film, 14th, but whatever, despite Beyond currently staggering to meet its budget, so do you see much of a chance that the Kelvinverse can continue on in big screen format? Yeah, that's been a thing that I don't really get into, is the stressing about specific box office figures. I mean, it's just opening in a lot of countries, too, but... Yeah, the the foreign box office is it's probably too early to call that. Yeah, I think it just opened in China as we record this. Plus, the exact box office figures are not things that I stress over for any movie. Well, it is sort of important that, you know, the thing meet its budget if you want them to make more of them. I mean, it's not something I particularly care about. I'm not interested in how much money the movie makes. I'm interested in if the movie entertains me. But if I want them to make more movies, then I obviously want it to do well. Right. That's fair. But, I mean, I'm sure that it'll do well enough that they're not going to cancel the next movie. We talked a little bit about the rumors for Star Trek fourteen at the end of our Beyond episode, so there are many different directions they can take that, but I think the Kelvin timeline, whatever you're calling it, you know, it has juice to go on for a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's only been on screen for six hours. Yeah. 
I mean, even the original series was on screen for, what, like, 92 hours? And Next Generation was on screen for, like, 185 or 190? Mm. These reboot movies have been on screen for six hours, so there's plenty of potential. Yeah, and as we saw with Beyond, I mean, you can reinvigorate these things. Whether or not you believed they needed reinvigoration, I I know. (laughs) But you can have something that feels new and fresh 50 years into the franchise. So I, I get a particular sort of perverse enjoyment out of these people that say, well, Beyond is the one that finally feels like a Star Trek movie, even though the main theme of Beyond is capped off by openly acknowledging that it's the theme that's been running through all three of these movies. But this is the one that feels like a Star Trek movie because it's got this theme that ran through all three movies. I know you have a perverse fascination with people who agree with you that Beyond was good, but not for the reasons you think so. Well, the reasons they cite for Beyond being good are the things that were also true of the other movies. We already spent a great deal of time discussing those. The climax of Beyond is an explicit callback to the first one. Yes. The climax of Beyond that people cite and say, look at this sort of Star Trek moral theme that's so important in the story. It's an explicit callback to the 09 movie, which they claimed didn't have any explicit Star Trek moral theme. But now that that same moral theme is called back to from this movie, this movie gets credit for having the moral theme. While the movie that they're calling back from does not get credit for having the moral theme. This is why I have no time for the reboot haters. So, yes, uh, I think both of us see a great chance for uh, this sub-series of Star Trek movies to go on into the future. There's, There's so much left to do. Next question. He has a few. Uh, Of course, it's hard to say anything about the TV show with little indication of what it's about or when it occurs. Uh, Some of that got clarified after he sent his question in, I think. But it is an interesting gamble in the era of Netflix shows being the latest big thing. So Trek's small screen future is also quite uncertain at the moment. I disagree. I don't think it's uncertain at all. Uh, Les Moonves announced the other day that the new Star Trek show is already making money because they've sold the uh, international (laughs) streaming rights to Netflix. and so I wish they'd sell the domestic streaming rights to Netflix. Well, we'll see if CBS All Access fails. <laughs> you know, they're going to they're going to get at least some new subscribers to CBS All Access. They're not going to get quite as many as they might if it was a commercial free streaming service or There are commercials on that thing? You have to pay monthly and then they still run commercials? What the it, fuck kind of bullshit is that? It hasn't quite been decided yet if they're going to introduce a commercial free pricing tier. Why would you pay monthly for the right to watch commercials? Oh, that was the case on Hulu until recently, I yeah, believe. Yeah, that's why I was never remotely interested in subscribing to Hulu. Yeah, well... I'm not going to pay monthly for something... I'm not going to pay monthly for the right to sit and watch commercials. I have BitTorrent. The Place to Be Nation does not encourage the illegal streaming or downloading of any copyrighted material. Don't do it, listeners. Don't steal you that optical media. No. Oh, no it's not optical anymore. Don't steal you that digital media. When I was in school, we had a big poster on the wall of the computer classroom and said, Don't copy that floppy, which was an anti-piracy slogan at the time, but software doesn't come on floppies anymore. And so 
in the 90s and 2000s, I made the joke that they should update that slogan, don't copy that floppy, and to maintain the rhyme, it would become, don't steal ya that optical media. But now they don't even use optical media, you just download it. So don't steal ya that digital download. <laughs> right, so obviously uh, neither this podcast, nor I myself, nor Scott, nor the Place to Be Nation endorse the illegal procurement of copyrighted material. TM, TM, TM. But I'm not fucking paying monthly for the right to watch commercials. Well... I might have to, and that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> I did um, read an interesting post where somebody was complaining about putting the new series on All Access, where their basic gist was that, you know, Star Trek is an altruistic future, and using the series to launch your new streaming service and make people subscribe to the commercial streaming service is so against all of the Star Trek ideals... And I didn't understand that criticism because it's not like this is the first time Star Trek has been a commercial venture. <laughs> I mean, all of Star Trek is being produced under late capitalism. I mean, in the 1970s when they were developing Phase 2, it was envisioned as the centerpiece programming on a new Paramount television network. And then in 95, when they premiered Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Voyager was the centerpiece programming of a new Paramount television network. So, Not to mention know. that all of this is being made for commercial distribution. Every single Star Trek movie was unavailable to anyone who didn't buy a ticket. So, given the information that's come out about Star Trek Discovery so far, do you want to just say really quickly um, what you think about what's been said so far about the style and setting? Well, we don't really know anything yet. All we know is that it's like a little bit before the original series. We, we don't know what it's about. We don't know what kind of stories they're going to tell. We don't know anything about any of the characters other than, like, some demographic data on some of them. So I, I, have, no, I have no comment until I can, like, you know, I, until I know what the hell they're trying to do. I mean, I remain cautiously optimistic about the new TV show the way that I have been cautiously optimistic about every new Star Trek production since the 2009 movie. So... I'll watch it, and I hope it's good, but... Well, I'm much more optimistic, as opposed to cautious, about the new series than I was about the 09 movie. Because they now have a track record of three movies that were all incredible. So I'm more on the optimistic side than on the cautious side now. Although this is a completely separate production, a completely different production team. It's not even the same corporate umbrella, since the movies are made by Viacom... And the TV series being made by CBS. Well, I think that's why they've been bringing in so many people as co-producers of the television show. Nick Meyer is a co-producer. Rod Roddenberry is a co-producer. Brian Fuller brings a whole fan base of his own. Lots of people loved Pushing Daisies, loved Hannibal. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to love American Gods, which he's doing kind of contemporaneous with Star Trek. So I'm optimistic about that. The fact that they're going to a prequel setting again is, is, is I don't want to say off-putting and I don't want to say disappointing because, again, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'll see the show. I hope it's good. It probably will be. But that seems like an odd choice. I think I was ready for something that would kind of move on from parts of the setting and concerns of the 24th century era shows and movies in the way that Next Gen moved on, as I said before, from the concerns of the original series. 
you know, so something, if not literally set a hundred years after Nemesis or whatever, something that would be moving forward. I kind of get that. On the other hand, I think that would be kind of hard to do. I mean, at some point, you sort of run out of future, you know? Do you, though? You imagine this, like, fantastical, can-barely-be-imagined future setting, and then you have to imagine a fantastical-er, even more harder-to-imagine, even future-er setting. And now you have to imagine an even more fantastical-er-er, even more future-er-er-er setting. The fantastical future of the fantastical future of the fantastical future. Eventually, what are you going to do? You know? How do you design that? What technology do they have that's a fantastical future compared to the next generation? That was a fantastical future compared to the original series. That was a fantastical future compared to us. These, of course, are difficult questions. (laughs) Also, because Star Trek is a vision of a positive... Not really utopian, but in that direction of utopia. As you go farther into the future, you get closer and closer to the utopia. So how do you tell stories? Even on Next Generation, they had trouble telling stories because they were so close to what Roddenberry defined as his future utopia that they couldn't create conflict. So unless your future is that utopia comes crashing down in some sort of apocalyptic cataclysm, what stories are you going to tell? So I understand why they're going back to an earlier era, going back to a well-known era where that'll be a familiar, comfortable setting for a lot of the audience. And if you're trying to attract new fans that aren't previous Star Trek fans, well, do you want to just present them with a regular fantastical future, or you want to present them with the fantastical future of the fantastical future of the fantastical future? It So it's both comfortable for existing fans and more relatable for new fans by making it closer to our present. Not just in time, but in feel, in society, in, you know, what issues they deal with, in how these characters live their lives. It's familiar to old fans and more familiar than the fantastical future to new fans. That's something else that I'm looking forward to seeing because with Star Trek being back on television, that is so much more of an opportunity than you get sometimes in the movies to do real, like, issue-oriented storytelling. Well, you and, say- we ta- and we talked about, you know, social issues in the latest movies and all, but on television you can, like, really, really hit on that stuff. Yeah, social issues are never going to be more than, like, a side thing for the movies. You've said before you're not going to get... The drumhead, the movie. Yeah. But you can get, you know, the drumhead, the new television episode, given our... Given the context of 2016. How many episodes are in the new series? Are they doing, like, British-style 13-episode series? I don't know for sure. It'll probably be a shorter season like that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what kind of story they're trying to tell, but I mean, if you're doing a serialized 13-episode miniseries, you're not necessarily going to have time to dwell on the drumhead or frame of mind or stuff like that. It is going to be a tightly serialized show, as is the style for prestige television now, so that's something that'll be interesting to see. Steve also says, we're talking to, we're, we're talking to Steve Rogers a lot, um... 
A much less weighty question. Besides the show and movie score albums, is there anything you collect? Trading cards, action figures, model kits, etc. So, things that we collect. I know for one thing that in our basement are many, many tens of thousands of football cards. <laughs> oh jeez, I forgot I had them. You were very serious about that, albeit for a short period of time. I was never that serious about it, I just liked them. Yeah, you were just serious about buying huge boxes of them. Yeah, but then uh, the whole sports card industry sort of became too specialized. Mm. You know, everything's about like, you know, ooh, this card has silver foil on the corner, and this card has three square millimeters of a game-worn jersey, and there's an artificially created scarcity of them. And Yeah, I, I think something similar happened to comic books in the 90s as well, where, you know, there's always an issue number one coming around, and everything has five different covers. I mean, it, it went from, like, you know, 15 cards for 50 cents to, like, seven cards for 250 and you're just buying pack after pack after pack trying to find the gold foil card or whatever the fuck and you know that's not why i was into it i was into it because i liked football and i liked the football players yeah one of the important life decisions that i've made in the last few years was to move a lot of my collecting into the digital domain because <laughs> because otherwise like, our house would just be overrun. I mean, I used to... Well, you to... collect score albums. You have how many thousands and thousands of them? True, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I do have qu quite a lot. In, in, in terms of uh, what we have physically, I, ha I have a lot of uh, scores. We subscribe to the Eagle Moss Star Trek Starship uh, model series. Uh, that's... Once a month, we get two starships, so that's pretty cool. I have a whole cabinet for them. Otherwise, the things that I collect, I've moved digital. I used to get a lot of books. I used to get a lot of books because they were in the same, like, imprint, and so they had the same logo on the spine. Like, these are things I used to do <laughs> during my, like, teens and early 20s a little bit. Like, I have, like, a sizable part of a shelf of Signet Classics, that are all together only because they're all Signet Classics editions of X, Y, and Z books, and they all have the logo on the spine. Um, these are things that I've managed to stop doing <laughs> because the house would just be overrun. Well, I sort of... I guess I could say I used to at this point. I used to collect the Star Trek novels. I was way into them, and then around 2011 or so, I just sort of, sort of fell out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't read a couple, and then I was behind, and then I just sort of gave up, and I haven't read any since. <laughs> Someday I'll get back into that, maybe. Yeah, but in terms of action figures, models, I mean, we used to get a few here and there, but we never collected any. Yeah, not seriously. And other, like, memorabilia, collectibles. I mean, there were a lot of markets that we could have gotten into and would have been susceptible to and didn't. I mean, we have a few posters, we have a few of, you know, the, these things. Um, I mean, I enjoy a good poster, but I don't, like, collect them. Yeah, I'm basically not going to buy a poster anymore unless I'm actually going to put it on a wall. So the only poster I've bought in the last several years was one of those uh, retro-style Dalek posters. <laughs> yes, that's an excellent one. That's hanging above my shoulder right now, actually, as we record uh, your vision into the household. Lastly, we have a couple other questions, again from Steve, <laughs> uh, that we are going to run through kind of quickly. 
Spanning the 50 years since Star Trek debuted, can you give us your top 10 non-Trek space sci-fi TV and movie franchises or one-offs? Especially in contrast to Star Trek elements that they may have. Now... I completely blanked on this question, by yeah, the way. Yeah, whenever I'm asked to do something this specific, my mind just just evaporates. Like, I came up with five, and then I started Googling list of science fiction <laughs> franchises. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things we enjoy, but you don't really think of off the top of your head like that. I think it's interesting, though, to, to contrast to the Star Trek elements that they may have, because the influence of Star Trek on sci-fi is sometimes a little hard to track, I think. Because there are other things that come along and are such titanic influences. Like, the first thing you think of in terms of sci-fi post-1966 is Star Wars. Which was such a huge influence on all sci-fi that followed. Including further Star Trek, frankly. In terms of the transition between Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 2. You know, which one is more similar to The Empire Strikes Back? I would say Star Trek 2 is that similar to The Empire Strikes Back. I'm not saying it's it's particularly similar or a ripoff or anything, but in terms of the transition between 1 and 2, making 2 a little dirtier, its future is more cluttered than the kind of gleaming visions in Star Trek 1 in terms of making it an action movie, you know, in terms of some of the styles. I think there's an influence there in terms of... Those are all callbacks to the original series, not the Star Wars. They're that too, but they're also a big transition in that Star Trek 1 in 1979 was... Star Trek 1 was trying to be 2001 A Space Odyssey. Star Trek 2 went back to trying to be Star Trek. Right, but I, th I think at the very least in terms of Star Trek elements in Star Wars, it's not really... It's not an influence on Star Wars in part because Star Wars is more of a flashback itself. Yeah, Star Wars is more influenced by the stuff that came before Star Trek, like the Flash Gordon serials and right. shit like that. Right, definitely. Next obvious one you think of is Babylon 5, which uh, is the debate that Steve wanted to introduce with this question. There, there's the eternal struggle. He wants to talk about the war without end. He wants to talk about the war without end uh, and, and the um, moon-faced assassins of joy who continue this struggle... To the extent that it continues. Again, it's died down a little bit now. Between Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine. Can I quote the great philosopher Glenn Butler? Who once said, it's okay to like two things. Yes. But there, there is... I think there's kind of an anxiety of influence in Babylon 5 as well. Um... I used to spend a lot of time reading the uh, J. Michael Straczynski message board Usenet transcripts during the production of Babylon 5. He was in great dialogue with the fans. It's something that he was a little ahead of the curve on as well in terms of interacting with fans. And, you know, he would talk about, like, a script that got pulled because it was too much like a Star Trek episode. And, you know, that sort of way of defining yourself in the same general genre. It's all sci-fi space opera, but also in opposition in some respects. You know, th there was this list of things that Babylon 5 was not going to do. You know, Babylon 5 is not going to have a cute kid. Babylon 5 is not going to do... etc, etc, etc. To, in part, 
distinguish itself from what some people thought that Star Trek was. And so people latch on to some of the superficial, I think, similarities between DS9 and Babylon 5 in that they're both space opera shows set on space stations with more serialized storytelling than was the norm for television at the time, and they both involved lengthy wars. Past that, you know, some of the very, very broad strokes of the stories, and maybe a couple of particulars, but past that, the, the similarities aren't that great. The thing that always amused me about the War Without End between DS9 and Babylon 5 is that both sides claim the other ripped them off. <laughs> the DS9 people think that Babylon 5 stole stuff from DS9, and the Babylon 5 people think that DS9 stole stuff from Babylon 5. I love it when two groups of nerds start, like, nerd sniping at each other, the other group of nerds. And again, as if this is two different groups of nerds, it's okay to like two things. It's like when they started putting WWE Wrestling on the Sci-Fi Channel... And all the sci-fi channel, all the science fiction fans are like, oh, they're going to ruin the sci-fi channel by putting wrestling on it. And all the wrestling nerds are like, they're going to ruin wrestling by putting it on the sci-fi channel. It was very amusing just to watch the two sides snipe at each other. At the same time, like I said, Babylon 5 is existing within the context of televised space opera, sci-fi, which is, a, is, if not established, popularized in large part by Star Trek, especially in the 1990s by the popularity of Next Generation. Yeah, that's true. So there's, there's a context that it's fitting in, so there's a definite sharing of some elements by existing within the same, you know, subgenre. There were a lot of science fiction shows that were put on air in the 1990s that you could claim that it was the su success of The Next Generation that was part of the impetus to greenlighting all of those shows. Yeah, because sci-fi on TV in like the mid-80s, I mean, there's V, but aside from that, I'm not sure there were a lot of high-profile shows. Uh, next up, also, in, the, in terms of 90s cult TV, uh, The X-Files, which I don't think has a lot of influence or a lot of elements from Star Trek. It exists in a much different uh, strain of sci-fi, and a different strain in TV as well, and culture in the 90s, with the rise of a lot of conspiracy theorists, and, you know, the alien autopsies and all that, and generally fitting that into a cult TV show, outside, really, of the influence of Star Trek. A lot of these are going to skew 80s and 90s, just because that's when we grew up. Um, there's The Terminator, which, again, I don't think has a lot of elements or influence, but is still definitely a high-profile you know, movie series. I don't know if we should include Terminator, though, because he said post-Star Trek. And we specifically excluded things like Superman and Batman and the Marvel movies and Dune because they're all based on pre-existing novels or comic books or whatever that come from before Star Trek. Same thing with like the Planet of the Apes series. That novel came out in, before Star Trek aired. So stuff like that, the movie series may be post-Star Trek, but it's based on source material that predates Star Trek. And as we all know, the Terminator franchise is based on something that Harlan Ellison wrote in, like, the 50s. Oh, yes, of course. It was based on an Outer Limits episode, right? 
according to uh, the law, I guess. <laughs> the sci-fi series that's near and dear to our hearts, I know, is Quantum Leap. Also a great show, an interesting show in several respects. I don't uh, think it has a lot of Star Trek influence. No, not really. It's very That's a very underrated show, though. That sort of gets forgotten a lot among sci-fi fans, just because it's not like set in outer space, but... Mm. That that's a that that was a good show. Also similar in that it's not really set in outer space. Uh, Sliders, at least the first season or two, maybe. The first season of Sliders was great. The second season was very meh, and then it fell off a cliff. Well, I think a lot of the appeal of that show was the variety of alternate universes they would slip into every week. It's almost like a common interpretive can't that I see on Doctor Who is that the premise of the show allows it to be a completely different show every week because the TARDIS is landing in a different story every week so it can be all all different genres all different tones and styles and sliders is much the same way because they slide to another universe and this one you know might be serious and grim and gritty and then they go to another one where it's still the 70s and everyone's in bell bottoms the first season of Sliders was great because the first season focused on the worlds they were going into. Every week was like a different AU mm. that, that you got to explore and look at the similarities and look at the differences. And, you know, our characters try to fit into this AU and figure out their place in it. And then the second season, they sort of forgot about a lot of that to make it more of an action-oriented series. And then in the third season, they, you know, fell off a cliff. Yeah, they just fell off a cliff. Battlestar Galactica, I think, is an interesting case because the 70s Battlestar Galactica series was obviously due to a lot of the Star Wars influence, but the Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica series has a lot of Star Trek influence, specifically Ron Moore being mad about the time he worked on Voyager for two weeks. Yeah, the entire Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica series is like a reaction to, like, things they wouldn't let him do on Star Trek. Yeah. Where he not only does he get to indulge a lot of the moodiness and sort of questioning of your base premises that they did a little bit on DS9, but that was pulled back, but also a reaction to a lot of the premise of Voyager and how little of the premise of Voyager was used on screen, where a lot of, at least the early part of the show, a lot of it is about... You know, they don't have any supplies, they can't fix their ship, they can't do all of these things that you need to do in a fleet. They're having trouble integrating people from different ships and, and different uh, walks of life. And you mean all of the things that they created in the premise of this Voyager series and then never explored ever, not once, on the entire series? Well, that's why I say it's a, such an interesting study in, in influences. A lot of it is as if Ron Moore and David Icke and everyone else involved in the show is saying, you know, we're actually going to take this premise seriously. And very, very seriously indeed. Not as serious, but also another sci-fi series close to our hearts, the Bill and Ted movies. Oh, I this is one I never would have thought of in a million years until I saw it on a list when I googled list of science fiction franchises. Like, yeah, that's science fiction. Sure, <laughs> totally. I mean, I don't I don't know how much complicated uh, interpretive analysis they do on Bill and Ted. They're just fun. Star Trek would only have benefited from having George Carlin play a character. Yes. <laughs> Imagine George Carlin having an argument with Captain Picard. 
I'm picturing George Carlin as the cardinal in Dogma, as like an admiral. <laughs> the Buddy Kirk. Send us your fan art, folks. Uh, a little later on in the 90s, I mean, if we're talking about sci-fi of the last few decades, obviously there's The Matrix, which... It's a shame they never made any sequels to that movie. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is obviously reacting to a lot of cyberpunk and and things like that. A lot of um, Asian cinema as well. A lot of influence as far as technical aspects of the movie. Not a lot of Star Trek influence, again... But in in contrast to The Matrix, not in terms of Star Trek elements, but in terms of style, I really wanted to talk about The Fifth Element a little here, because not only is it a great movie and a fun movie, but even visually, so many sci-fi movies feel that they have to be dark and drab and serious, and The Fifth Element is just like an explosion of camp. Yes. I mean, is that. there is every single thing about Chris Tucker in that movie. <laughs> there, There is everything about Gary Oldman in that movie. Uh, it's just, in a, it's an explosion of camp, of color, of vibrancy in all aspects. And it's just great. Especially in the context of 90s... And forward, uh, sci-fi fantasy movies, a lot of which feel the need to be very, you know, pent up and serious and stoic. We were talking about how there was like a bumper crop of science fiction series in the 90s that you could say all got their chance because of the pre-existing success of Star Trek The Next Generation. There was a point in the 90s, if you remember, where they were like searching for any scrap of note paper in Gene Roddenberry's desk and putting it into production. Yes. <laughs> they they were at least the Andromeda series that Robert Hewitt Wolf did that was based on an idea he had once. There was Earth Final Conflict, which aired for several years, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think that aired for like five years. So did Andromeda. I never saw the second season of Andromeda. I saw the first season was really good, and I heard they basically shafted the entire production crew after that, and I never got around to watching the rest of it. Yeah, I think it was partway through season two that they fired Robert Hewitt Wolf and I think some of the other staffers, and then, you know, Kevin Sorbo basically ran the show. Mm. Not not like like actively writing it, I don't think, but they did what Kevin Sorbo wanted to do because he was the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. And so a lot of the arc that Robert Hewitt Wolf was setting up throughout his season and a half, season and a part on the show, got thrown out so that Kevin Sorbo could do all the Kevin Sorbo things that Kevin Sorbo wanted to do. Great. And they did that for another three and a half years. <laughs> because it's syndication and it's the 90s and sci-fi was still popular, damn it. Um, but yeah, basically anything that they that Majel Barrett could put Gene Roddenberry's name on. <laughs> they produced. <laughs> and, you know, bless her. <laughs> hey. There's also, if you want to talk about a little more recent stuff, we talked about a lot of stuff from the 80s and 90s, obviously, but in recent years, there's been a lot of other sci-fi movies that are a little different in terms of tone and premise. It's not as much straightforward space opera, 
but there are some smaller movies, some sort of indie movies. You know, there's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which I think is a really, really beautiful movie. Kind of like a tone poem in places. It's, it's just a beautiful movie. Moon is one that a lot of people liked that has its own tone and really, really goes for it. Um, Mad Max Fury Road was amazing. Like, there are very detailed and interesting analyses of that movie, but, like, the first five things I feel like saying about it are that it was amazing. (laughs) Um, I've never seen any of the Mad Max movies. No, that's the only one I've seen, so... But still, yes, I mean, in terms of Star Trek influences, not a lot of the ones that we've named really have them. <laughs> so there's there's a thing. Last question uh, st- from Steve. He asks about our favorite Star Trek parodies, specifically asking about Galaxy Quest, but also any others that we particularly like. I saw someone recently say that, like, Knowledge is knowing that Galaxy Quest is not a Star Trek movie, and Wisdom is knowing that it's the best one, in which case I'm not very wise. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the best one. I mean, I, I liked it. I've only seen the movie once, and it was fine, it was good, it was entertaining, it was funny, but I didn't think it was like the best thing ever like a lot of people think it is. The thing that struck me about Galaxy Quest was that I was thinking at some point that if they had never brought Star Trek back... Like, if they hadn't done Star Trek 1, or if it had failed, or if they had tried to do Phase 2 and that had failed, and Paramount just washed its hands of Star Trek, then, by the 90s, it probably would have been brought back as sort of a, hey, remember this goofy thing from the 60s? Like the Brady Bunch movie. Like the... Did they do a Partridge Family movie? They did, like, a McHale's Navy movie? Yeah, they did a McHale's Navy movie. They did the Brady Bunch movie. They a couple a, of them. They did a Car 54 or R.U. movie. Exactly. They did a Mod Squad movie, which actually wasn't as campy. Right. But there was that spat in the 90s into the 2000s when they did the Mod Squad and Herbie the Love Bug the movie, where they were bringing back these old campy properties. And I'm thinking, if they had never brought back Star Trek in the 70s and the 80s... It would have been one of those, and that movie would have been Galaxy Quest. Yeah, to a large extent. (laughs) Like, pretty much exactly. I mean, they might have dredged up Bill Shatner for it, (laughs) but otherwise... Speaking of fanfiction, Galaxy Quest is pretty similar to one of the more famous fanfictions that was circulating in the 70s. There's a rather famous story, a pair of stories, actually. And I forget which one... One of them was published... In the 1970s, when Bantam had the Star Trek novel tie-in license, they published two collections of fanfiction. And I think the second story in this series was in one of those collections, but not the first one. But there were two famous stories. I think it was called, like, Visit to a Weird Planet was the title. And then there was Visit to a Weird Planet Revisited. I don't remember what order they went in, but in one of them, all of the actors from Star Trek suddenly found themselves on the real Enterprise. Mm. And then in the other one, all of the characters from Star Trek suddenly found themselves on a Paramount backlot movie set. Or television set. And those those were rather famous fanfiction stories. They, they both come from, like I said, like the early 70s. One of them actually was published in one of the Bantam New Voyages collections. And that is very similar to the premise of what Galaxy Quest eventually became. Right, definitely. Aside from that, this is another question that we kind of blanked on. 
Um, yeah, I'm not that big on... I don't know that many parodies. I mean, there's like, you know, the famous SNL sketch, but other than that... Yeah, I mean, SNL did a thing, and Living Color did one, Mad TV did one, but I was never I remember never really... the Living Color one being pretty good, but I haven't seen it in 20 years. Yeah, I was never really high on that. I mean, everyone's got their Bill Shatner impression, but meh. Some of the things that I like are some of the more, like, postmodern stuff. Like, there are a few YouTube accounts that do, like, re-edited versions where they take, like, clips of next-gen episodes and make gags out of them. It's hard to describe, but they're, like, short, bite-sized YouTube videos, and they're really funny. Um, Andrew Hussey did a bunch of them. Uh, Jandrew Edits, I think, was one. General Grin was another account or user that did a lot of them. There was that video for the Kesha song TikTok with clips from the original series. That one was great. There's the uh, Klingon style song from back when Gangnam Style was popular. That one, that one's a really good video. There are a couple. I think someone did a whole album of Klingon pop music, actually. Well, if we're just naming random YouTube videos, have you ever seen the My Spock video? I don't think so. Oh, man, it's so funny. It's like the whole song, too. It's like five or six minutes long. It's like the entire My Shot song, but it's Mm. so good. But I think the best parody that came out of Star Trek is the career of William Shatner following Star Trek. Uh, what you what you refer to as William Shatner as William Shatner. William Shatner as William Shatner is the best comedy performance of our time. Yes. Shatner's wholesale adoption of the parodies of himself that resulted in many of his later albums. Although The Transformed Man, his first album, is a legitimately artistically interesting piece. <laughs> I know that's where Tambourine Man comes from and all that, and ha ha ha, I know. But the idea of that album as a combination of Shatner performing Shakespearean monologues and also performing pop singles, kind of combining these things in pairs to highlight not really the contrast between high culture and low culture, but what the things that we call high culture and low culture have in common. And so the common themes between, as we were talking about before, things that get placed in the category of high culture, but were not that when they were produced. So combining these things with Bob Dylan songs or whatever is a legitimately artistically interesting thing that Shatner did on that first album, which, yes, is where he also yelled for the tambourine man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then his his further musical career was more inherently parodic. You know, there, there was his album with Ben Folds, and I think he's had another one since then, or two. And of course, everything that he did in the final season of The Practice and several years of Boston Legal. Yes. Was basically William Shatner as William Shatner. That, yes. Boston Legal is all around amazing in many ways. Yes. It was incredible. It had a lot of ripped-from-the-headlines political stuff, so it would be interesting to see how that plays today rather than at the time, but that show was amazing. Give us a Black Little Orphan Annie. Not tomorrow, today. How prophetic. How prophetic. <laughs> we got a Black Little Orphan Annie. Not tomorrow. A couple years ago. Oh, goodness. 
I think we've sort of wandered off topic. No, we have. Um, I think I think we might be done with the topic anyway. Before we sign off for today, I want to read one more email that I got. Also from William Rankin, who had a couple of our questions earlier. He says, I wanted to say formally, without the restrictions of 140 characters, that you both have done a great job with your Star Trek film series. I drive about 85 miles to work every morning at 5 a.m. Sir, I respect you. And my favorite... Right? <laughs> and my favorite mornings were listening to you guys dig deep into Trek. Granted, I didn't always agree, but I didn't always disagree either. That's a good balance. <laughs> what to me is not debatable is the hard work and excellent execution of Star Trek from the roots of the television show to the score. I love the talks about the various scores and how they differ in each of the films. Well, thank you. We'll, we'll keep doing it. <laughs> what struck me more than anything you guys talked about was the Star Trek 09 episode and how emotional it was for the both of you. I couldn't agree more. I, too, had lost my father before going to see it, even though I had actually lost him 15 years before. I'm good with things, but I still get emotional about it from time to time. Even more than just the Kelvin scene, which is arguably as emotional a scene from any Star Trek entity, the whole movie made me wish so much that my dad could be back for one day to see how Star Trek had updated and yet had the beautiful exuberance of the original series in the 60s. When I listened to that episode, and honestly any time you bumpered the episodes with Horner or Goldsmith scores, I cried in the car. Wholeheartedly admit, no ego. I sobbed behind the wheel because I'm 33 now and I have a son. He's not quite old enough to process what's on television, but I'm so excited to show him Star Trek and so many other things, hoping it is the experience for him that it was for me seeing it with my father. I'll never forget when I went to his funeral, and beforehand was the last time I would get to see him. He was done up real well with the makeup. His marine crew cut was perfect, his dress uniform unwrinkled. About a year before, he had bought me one of the replica communicators from the original series, but like all collectibles he would buy, he told me I couldn't take it out of the package. For this occasion, even at 11, I knew it was the best time to make an exception. I took it out of the package and put it in his pocket for him to be buried with. The wild thing was after I had put it in there and stepped away, it went off. <laughs> I heard the sound from the show you'd hear when someone was trying to get a hold of someone. I mean, I'm not a religious man by any means, and I know there was a plausible explanation as to why, but for a moment I suspended reality and said to myself, Beam him up, Scotty. He's ready to go. That's what's truly amazing about Star Trek. It's one of the greatest generational stories of all time. Our parents, us, and the ones that come after us will all share in the experience, and that's something truly beautiful. So, thank you very much for sending that story. It's... I mean, we talked about it before. It's an emotional thing for both of us. That's the thing Star Trek has. We just answered that question about what sci-fi, big sci-fi franchises came after Star Trek. That's the thing Star Trek has that those other franchises that we talked about from like the 80s and 90s don't have. A, because they're too young, and B, even the bigger ones are just like a series and maybe a couple of attached things or a handful of movies. You know, Terminator's been around since 1984, but it's what, a series of like five movies? That's, you know, that doesn't compare to 700 hours of television, mm. you know? 
So Star Trek has so much stuff, and it's 50 years old. So it is something that can be watched across generations. And there's such a wide variety of stuff that's been done within Star Trek. You know, if one person likes The Next Generation, and someone else likes Voyager, and someone else likes the original series, and someone else likes the movies, or someone else likes the novels, or someone else likes the comic books... There's such a wide variety of stuff within Star Trek, and it's been going on so long that it can cross generations, and there's so much of it to share, rather than just like a handful of two-hour movies, that it is something that can be shared amongst people in ways that other franchises can't. I mean, the only one I can think to even compare it to is Doctor Who. That's the only thing that's been going on as long and has as many episodes. I guess Doctor Who is sort of, for the British audience, sort of what Star Trek is for a lot of people in the American audience. I've said before, I think, on this podcast that I often steal a line that uh, the author Dayton Ward used to use in his About the Author bio blurb when he would write Star Trek tie-in novels, where he had a line that he used where he said, the author has been a fan of Star Trek since conception, parentheses, his, not Treks. That's often the way I describe it because of how much of a fan our mother was where she was watching it in 1966 mm-hmm. she was she was sitting there watching charlie x watching where no man has gone before she was there from the beginning and then i don't remember a time when i was not a star trek fan it was just always there i was always watching it i do not remember a time before i knew about star trek and watched star trek and enjoyed star trek and that is something I, that I got from Mom. And I know it's something that you got just from being in the environment with me and Mom. Yeah, exactly. So it is something that gets passed on like that. And because there's so much newer stuff, it's not like, you know, it's not like Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. It's not something where somebody may say, okay, well, that's, you know, pretty good for the 50s. Because Star Trek isn't just something that was pretty good for the 60s, because there was Star Trek in the 80s, and there's Star Trek in the 90s, and there was Star Trek in the 2000s, and now there's Star Trek in the 2010s. Yeah, there are shows that you share with your kids, and the kids share with their parents. But, like you said about Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or any, any of those things, those are closed-off entities. The thing about Star Trek and Doctor Who, like you say, is... It continues. There are always more Star Trek stories being told, no matter what medium they're being told in. And so it goes on, generation to generation to generation. And it's it's really a beautiful thing. It has a lot of diversity and a lot of combinations. There are a lot of stories that you see online about Star Wars in particular, since that's been so big lately with the new movie. Of people saying, yeah, my my kid saw The Force Awakens and now I'm showing them the original trilogy and this is something I liked as a kid and now I'm sharing it. And that's sort of a similar thing. But again, I don't think it's quite the same because there's only 12 hours of Star Wars. You know, if you want to include like the Caravan of Courage and shit like that, maybe there's some more. But in general, there's there's 14 hours, maybe 15 hours of Star Wars. There's... 700, 750 hours of Star Trek to go through. Nobody says they're showing their kids Star Wars and means the droid cartoon. (laughs) I mean, now they have the Clone Wars and and Rebels and all that stuff, but as a generational experience, it's, you know, a few movies. And Star Trek, yeah, like you say, is, is so much more... And, you know, that comes with the attendant uh, variation in quality, but still. 
And you're talking like 29 or 30 seasons of television. I mean, no other franchise has that. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, other than like Doctor Who. So, yes, there is an amazing amount of content. There's an amazing variety of content. And it's it's a beautiful thing, really, to share, you know, with your family and your loved ones across generations. And that's, you know, something that I look forward to. Um, I had a really similar thought, actually, to what he was talking about. Because Mom would have loved Beyond. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know what she would have thought of Darkness. But, yeah, she would have loved Beyond. So, on that note... I think we are going to sign off for this mailbag episode. Thank you so, so much to everyone who wrote in and sent questions and comments and subjects. Thank you to everyone who's listened to the show and uh, send in feedback about that. That's amazing to get. We will be back soon, I hope. Um, If there's anything else that you'd like to hear us talk about, feel free to send questions in anytime, not necessarily about Star Trek. If there's anything that you would like to ask us, send in questions anytime. Once we get enough, we'll do another show. Thank you very much. Listen to the other episodes if you haven't. Look at The Place to Be Nation if you haven't. Thank you very much. Good night. I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. In the jingle, jangle morning, I'll come following you. Take me on a trip. On your magic swirling ship My senses have been stripped My hands can't feel to grip My toes too numb to step Wait only for my boot heels to be wandering Objections. 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 Do fans of human objections? <laughs> oh, God. Hi, future Scott. <laughs>